much, David and Tasha Kay. And thank you, Emma. Thank you, Bruce. Like I, f- I feel every time uh, Bruce prays that I can just pronounce the benediction. Because <laughs> we've been well served and fed. Um, yesterday, uh, Kimbo and I traveled over to Stillwater. A dear family friend was graduating from Oklahoma State. And uh, so we went to that that graduation, and uh, afterwards, I was I was thinking, man, I I don't miss those days. <laughs> I, I don't miss my twenties, um, but I do miss. This is one thing I do miss about that that time of life. I miss not having to put any thought into my diet, and remaining relatively healthy no matter what I eat. I do miss that. Um, I miss being able to eat 3,000 calories a day without gaining any weight. I do miss that. And our scale in the bathroom reminds me those days are long gone. Uh, for the, this is going to go somewhere, I think. <coughs> for, the, for the last few years at least, uh, probably since our mid-30s, uh, Kimbo and I have tried to be more mindful of what we eat, um, but she is far better at that than I am. Um, she's far more disciplined. Uh, she has greater self-control. Uh, so I, I'm pretty good throughout the year. I really am pretty disciplined, pretty good. But about mid-November, I check out completely. Right? So about the second week of November, I check out. And from Thanksgiving through New Year's, I feast without shame. No shame at all. Um, so Kimbo, Kimbo is more spiritual in many ways, but I believe that I am more spiritual in that way. Because feasting really is divine, and I mean that. I mean that seriously. Feasting in dependence on God with a grateful heart is truly Christ-like. It truly is holy. And so, I guess that's the connection point. For the last few weeks, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and we've been looking at different meals that Jesus shared. And this morning, we're going to look at at perhaps the central meal that Jesus shared with his disciples, and it's a meal of salvation. And so our passage for this morning is in Luke 22, and we're going to read verses 7 through 20. And that's found on page 881 in the Pew Bibles, and so if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the Pew Rack. Uh, You can also follow along in the bulletin. But we're going to be considering Luke 22, verses 7 through 20. This is God's holy word. Let me pray, and then we'll read it together. Heavenly Father, the grass, it does wither, and the flowers fade, but your word remains forever, because your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And as I pray every week, pray that your spirit would go before me in the reading and preaching of your word, and that he would enliven us, and that your word would work that it would accomplish the purpose that it goes forth for. And so unstop our ears and open our eyes and give us receptive hearts that as we read and as I seek to faithfully preach your word this morning, that you would do a work within us to help us see our sin and more importantly to see our Savior. In whose name we pray, amen. Beginning in verse 7, this is God's holy word. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. 
So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. Until the master of the house, the teacher, says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you. This is uh, poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. May God write his word upon our hearts. Before we, uh, before we dive in to today's meal, this very well-known Passover meal, I want to spend just a moment uh, showing you that food and drink and feasting not only had a central place in the life of Jesus, they have a central place in the history of salvation. And so if you ever thought about this, maybe this sermon series has uh, sparked this within you. Have you ever thought about the place of food and feasting in the unfolding story of salvation? R really, food and, and drink and feasting and meals were not just important in the life of Jesus. They have, a, they have a central and prominent place in the story of salvation. And so you can make a really good case that it was the abuse of food and it was the wrong use of feasting that plunged mankind into sin and ruin. You ever thought about that? That it was a, it was a bad feast that started this whole thing. In the garden, God told Adam and Eve that they could freely feast from every tree in the garden, except the one tree. And yet it was the one tree with fruit that was delightful to the eyes and desirable that they longed to feast from. God said, you can feast and eat and nourish yourself from every tree except this one tree, but it was that one tree and that one meal they longed to eat. And their spiritual feasting became our spiritual famine. That was just the beginning. So this meal that we're looking at this morning, it comes in the context of the Passover. The Lord's Supper began as a Passover. But the Passover was just one of many feasts that God commanded in the Old Testament. And so God's people in the Old Testament celebrated His goodness and provision in seven annual feasts. There was the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, the Feast of Firstfruits, the Feast of Weeks, 
the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of the Atonement on Yom Kippur, um, the Feast of Tabernacles, also called the Feast of Booths. And so there were seven annual feasts, and those seven annual feasts were in addition to the weekly feast that was held on the Sabbath. And so Tim Chester writes, feasts were an integral part of Old Covenant faith. Every year, God's people were to spend one-tenth of their produce on feast. This is not the tithe. This is over and above the tithe. One-tenth of what they produced on feast, the weekly Sabbath feast, the seven annual feasts. And so Chester writes, do the math. God's people were always having a big party. In the Old Testament, God's people, just like God's son, were constantly feasting. And each of those feasts were meant in some way to point to the eternal kingdom feast that awaits us. And so from this upper room, I want you to see how salvation is experienced through this meal. Salvation. It's a meal of salvation. And I have three words this morning that I want you to focus on. Remembrance, restoration, and realignment. And so first, let's, uh, let's focus on remembrance. Uh, there's, a, there's a particular Thanksgiving meal that stands out in my mind. It has a special place in my heart. So several years ago, when my father-in-law had cancer, we were gathered in his home for Thanksgiving, and it was me and Kimbo and our kids, um, my brother-in-law Harry, his wife Laura, and their kids, uh, my, and then uh, my mother and father-in-law, Harry and Jimmy Lou. And after dessert, we were sitting around the table, and Harry, my father-in-law, uh, he began to tell us stories. He began to regale us with tales of his childhood, and he told us about all of the shenanigans that he got into. And he told us about his dad's construction company and learning the trade from his father. He told us about meeting my mother-in-law, Jimmy Lou, when they were in eighth grade. And so for about two hours after dinner, um, we got to see life through his eyes as he remembered, reflected, and retold uh, life's story. And friends, I'm convinced that that's what a typical Passover feast was like. It really wasn't like what we do here, at least in form. It was a joyful time of remembrance where they would eat and celebrate and reflect and, and, and remember and retell stories. The first Passover feast, it was, it was eaten the night before Israel began its exodus. And so each family, and we read this earlier, each family was told to kill a flawless lamb. And they were to take the blood of that lamb and sprinkle it uh, around the door. And then they roasted that lamb, and they ate lamb with unleavened bread. And that night, Exodus tells us, Moses writes in, in Exodus, that as the Lord passed through Egypt, he would pass over the houses that were covered by blood. But the houses that were not covered by blood, he killed the firstborn. And then every year, every year, as they celebrated the Passover feast, they remembered they remembered how God had saved them. They remembered how he had freed them from slavery. They told stories. They reminisced. They taught their children. And that is precisely what Jesus and his disciples were doing here in Luke 22. They were feasting. They were eating. And they were telling stories. 
They were remembering God's salvation when all of a sudden, Jesus gave them a new reference point for their memories. So they're they're doing this annual traditional feast, and they're remembering how God had once saved them by passing over uh, their houses and sparing them because of the shed blood of a lamb. And they're remembering that when Jesus interjects and he gives them a new reference point for their memory. He takes that Passover feast and he tweaks it. This this time as they're eating, he says something different. He says, hey, this is my body given for you. When you do this from now on, do it in remembrance of me. What Jesus was saying is, No longer, friends, are you to remember God's salvation in the Passover through the blood of a a flawless little lamb. You're to remember God's salvation on the cross through my blood. The, The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the Passover was a feast of the old covenant. Here Jesus says the cup that's poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So they were remembering they were remembering what God had done. And, and we, we do the same thing. But our reference point is not what happened in Exodus. Our reference point is what happened on the cross. Author Tish Warren, we're, we're reading a book of hers, um, Liturgy of the Ordinary, I believe is the name of the book. We've been reading it and studying it during our staff meetings. And, um, and she has a chapter just about how God comes to us and and uh, meets and conveys his goodness and grace just in the ordinary things of life. And so she has a chapter on eating and the holiness and sacredness of eating. And in that chapter, she says, of all the things Jesus could have chosen to, to be done in remembrance of him, he chose a meal. I mean, think about that. Of all the things that he could have chosen when he said, when you do this, For perpetuity, until I return, do this in remembrance of me. He chose feasting. He chose eating and drinking. She writes, he could have asked his followers to climb a mountain to remember him. When you climb this mountain, remember me. He could have asked them to fast for 40 days and said, remember me. But instead, he picks the most ordinary of acts. He picks eating. The Lord's Supper is more than a memorial. We're we're not Zwinglian. The Lord's Supper is more than a memorial, but friends, it is not less than a memorial. In a more complete way, we remember. Every other week when we come to this table, we remember that we are covered by Jesus' blood. We remember that we are free. That those chains that Jason mentioned, the chains of addiction, that that Christ has loosened the chains and they have fallen off, that we are free. That we are no longer enslaved as as our forefathers in the faith were enslaved by the Egyptians. That we're no longer enslaved to sin, enslaved to this world, enslaved to self. That we are free. That's what we remember when we come to this table. But consider this. Not only does the Lord's Supper serve as a reminder to us, it serves as a reminder to God. It's it's a reminder to Him of His covenant promise to us. Now, 
Certainly God doesn't forget the way that we're often prone to forgetting. But this feast is a sign to him, just like the rainbow was a sign in Genesis 9. Do you remember that? Beginning in Genesis 6, God uh, curses the earth with a flood, and the rainbow, we've forgotten this. We think the rainbow is is a reminder to us that God will not curse the earth that way again. But that's not what we're told in Genesis 6. It's a reminder to God. The Lord said, It shall be a sign, the rainbow, of the covenant between me and the earth. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you. God sets a sign so that he will remember his faithfulness. And this meal that we're going to come to in a moment, that we, that we celebrate so often, is a reminder to us of what God has done for us, but it's a reminder to him of his faithfulness and promise. So the first word is remembrance. The second word I want you to consider is restoration. Have you, uh, have you ever noticed <clears throat> how meals seem to, the, to function as restoration ceremonies? Right? That many times when a relationship is broken, meals serve as a ceremony of restoration where we, uh, we come back together about about 10 years ago, uh, my relationship with a, with a dear friend was broken. We were very close. Our families went on a, on a cruise together. Uh, he and I uh, went on a couple of guys' weekends, a trip to Colorado once. Um, I spent countless hours at his house learning to brew beer. Um, he was a dear friend. But over the course of several months, um, and for a number of reasons, our relationship deteriorated, and we stopped talking. So I'd been here in Tulsa. Um, this marks our, uh, the beginning of our eighth year um, here. But I'd been here a little over a year, and I got an email from this man. And he said, hey, next time, next time that you're in Dallas for a presbytery meeting, because uh, when we were in North Texas Presbytery, we would travel there about three times a year. He said, next time you're in Dallas for a presbytery meeting, I'd love to have a meal with you and talk. So we met Saturday morning for breakfast and we talked for hours. And we apologized and we wept. And we we said we were both stupid for what we did. And we left that meal restored, right? We left that meal restored And that meal wasn't magical, but God used it as a means of restoration. And so the biblical scholar Scott Barkey, he says that in the ancient world, being welcomed at table for the purpose of eating food with someone else, it was a ceremony of unity. It was was richly symbolic, and it was always the beginning of reconciliation and restoration. And so this meal is a meal of restoration. Restoration always happens. And so I want you to to look behind me to the cross. Restoration always happens on two planes. It happens on the vertical plane between us and God, and it happens on the horizontal plane between us and others. And from a biblical perspective, from the Christian perspective, we cannot live in a restored relationship with others if we are not in a restored relationship with God. And so in this way, restoration is a supernatural gift. 
If, if, we, if relationships between us are broken down, in order for those relationships to be restored, we must be right with God. And God accomplishes that. And what I'm saying is that, that we cannot accomplish restoration on our own. You know, having a meal with a foe will not make them a friend. But God uses meals. And when he shows up, he does what only he can do. God provides restoration. God is the one who provides restoration for us. And and so we see God's provision even in the way this meal is prepared. Even what Jesus says. So Jesus sent Peter and John. This is fascinating. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us. And they went and found it just as he had told them. So the late R.C. Sproul, he said, Peter and John are told to prepare the meal, but the preparations have already been made. He says, in John's account, Jesus tells the disciples during that meal that he's going to prepare a place for them in his father's house. Jesus is the host. He's the one who makes the preparations. And and Sproul writes, we are restored by him so that we can eat with God and one another for eternity. And so Jesus is the host. He's the provider. He's the means of restoration. He provides this meal of restoration. Jesus uh, gives us bread, and he is our bread. Jesus is the gift, but he's also the giver. So a few weeks ago, we were, uh, after church, we were, we were having lunch at a sandwich shop, which I won't name, and uh, there was a large sign taped to the cash register, and it said, we want you to enjoy this meal, therefore we're not serving romaine lettuce due to recent concerns about E. coli. So the Lord's Supper is a meal of restoration that we're meant to enjoy, but it also includes a warning. It also includes a warning. Two warnings, actually. First, if we aren't restored to God, this, this meal is a meal of restoration, but if we aren't restored to God, then this, then this uh, feast of restoration becomes food of judgment. So Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that anyone who eats and drinks uh, from this table, apart from faith in Christ, brings judgment upon himself. I think one of the things that Paul's getting at is if we aren't restored to God, we have no reason to feast. So the first warning is that we don't come to this table um, unless we're restored to God. The second warning also comes from 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, The Corinthians uh, had turned this meal of restoration into a selfish celebration. Paul writes, When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. So then, my brothers, when you come together, wait for one another. Salvation, which this meal provides, had been clouded by selfishness. And so Paul warned the Corinthians about eating this restoration feast when when there were still broken down relationships between them. This meal in particular, but every meal in general, is an opportunity 
for restoration. That, that's why God's provided this meal, but really any meal. He provides them for restoration. And so perhaps you have a broken down relationship with a friend, a neighbor. Perhaps you have a, a somewhat broken down relationship with God. Perhaps, in going back to the garden, maybe you have a broken and misguided relationship with food itself. And just like Jesus did with this Passover meal, he intends to take every meal and repurpose it. That's what he did in the Passover. He repurposed it. No longer think about this, now think about this. God intends to take every meal and repurpose it for restoration. And so when we come to the table every other week, and I would say when you sit down at every table, you remember, you reflect on restoration. And The final thing I would share with you is that this is a meal of realignment. It realigns us. So on January um, 15th, 2009, flight 1549 departed from LaGuardia Airport, and uh, just a few minutes after taking off, um, it ran into a flock of geese, and Captain Chesley Sullenberger uh, performed the only, it's never happened before, landing uh, of an aircraft uh, on water that's not designed for water. He landed it in the Hudson River, and no one no one was killed. Only two were slightly injured. You think about that. I was, I was listening to a radio show, and they were interviewing a couple pilots, and, and the reason that's been made into a movie and starred Tom Hanks, and the reason it's such a big deal is because never had, had a pilot landed a plane that wasn't designed to be landed in water. You know, there are those planes that land on water that have the skids and stuff, but never had a pilot landed a plane in water without crashing it. He only had a few minutes to act. I mean, just a few minutes. And it was the habits. It was the habits that he had learned from three-plus decades of piloting airplanes that kicked in. What, what he had learned and, and sort of became uh, just instinct to him, it kicked in. And as a result, everyone lived. Friends, participation in the Lord's Supper is habit-forming. I'm thankful that we celebrate this meal twice a month. Uh, the church that I grew up in, we celebrated it uh, twice a year. Um, and you may come from churches and backgrounds that, that didn't place the same emphasis on this sacramental meal the way that we do or the way that others do. And it's important because it's habit-forming. Each time we eat and drink from this table, we're relearning God's provision. We're remembering our dependence on Him. And this relearning is a realignment. Right? It realigns our minds and our hearts to the cross. And so the Lord's Supper, just like the Passover meal, forces us to look backwards. That's what, that's what the, the, the people of Israel did for nearly 2,000 years. As they celebrated the Passover meal, they looked backwards to what God had done. And when we come to this table, we look backwards to what Christ has done. But we also look forward. We mustn't forget that. We also look forward because the Lord's Supper points us to the Lamb's Supper that John writes about in Revelation 19. And as we look forward 
to this eternal feast. Our hearts are realigned uh, to the cross once again where we will eat and drink with God forever. And so this meal, this table, this feasting is habit-forming realignment. You know, every time I open a glass of wine, every time I slap some butter on some bread, I think of the feast that awaits me. Every time. The meal at this table has forever changed the way that I eat meals at my dinner table. I can't help but think of the cross because my heart's been realigned. And so just like Jesus, he says, I earnestly desire to eat this with you. We should earnestly desire to eat this meal. We should approach the feast of this table with anticipation and longing and joy. That's, that's the Advent theme for the day, joy. The Lord's Supper is meant to be a joyous occasion. Uh, one of my, just confession. One of my frustrations is the way that most of us, because I, I have the vantage point of looking out at your faces and your posture, uh, one, of, one of my frustrations is the way that most of us, and myself included, um, celebrate the Lord's Supper privately, alone, with our own thoughts, with our heads bowed, rather than with them lifted high. And I would love for us to realign the character of our feast. How did the Israelites celebrate Passover? They didn't do it alone in their private thoughts, holding their little shot glass of wine and their little sample of bread. It was a communal, it was a celebratory feast, it was a, a joyous occasion. What, what awaits us? What does this feast point us to? It, it points us to a feast that awaits us in heaven, the Lamb's Supper. And it is, it is somewhat frustrating the way that I think in our individualistic minds we, we hold on to these things and we we. we grunch our heads and, and our, we furrow our brows and we, we think about our sin rather than our Savior. Friends, you've already confessed your sin in this service. You've already been announced the pardon of God. You come to this meal with your head lifted high, with smiles on your face, with joy in your heart because the work is finished. It's a celebration for goodness sakes. We're, here's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating that the sinful feast in the garden has been undone. The sinful feast in the garden has ended, and a new feast has taken its place. A new feast has taken that place, and a greater feast awaits us. And so today, as you come to this table, do so remembering that you are restored with your hearts realigned to Christ and his cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, take this ordinary bread and ordinary wine and do something extraordinary with it. We, we don't believe that this uh, bread and wine um, becomes anything other than bread and wine. But you are spiritually present. Your Son is spiritually present in this meal. And you do for us through this meal something very real. You do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. You restore us to the Father. You restore us with one another. You realign our hearts uh, to the cross. And so I pray that as we do this, as we take this, this meal, and, and it becomes, uh, it, it's, it's habitual. We do it regularly. 
that it truly would be habit forming. That the things that we have learned, whether our heart's been realigned, that all of that would come back to us in this moment of, of need. And then you would restore us and prepare us for the days ahead. And between this meal and the next time we come to it with, with one another, that when we struggle with sin and temptation and, um, and turning our eyes away from Jesus, that you'll have used this feast um, to nourish us, to equip us. And so, Lord, do that. Do what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.